Thank you. May be seated this morning. And uh, wow, how many of you that song just gets you? You think about, I mean, what an amazing song that goes right through the the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the return of Christ. Aren't you looking forward to the return of Christ? Would it, would it be okay if he came today? It would be great, wouldn't it? Everything would be made new. And so, wow, we're thankful for you being here today. And as you can see on the screens here, we are in a series called Superheroes. And this is our second week uh, in this series. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 1. And as you're turning there, we're going to give you a quick recap. Uh, if In case you were not here last week, we started the series we started uh, with an unlikely hero and probably an un- unlikely hero to talk about on Mother's Day as well. And uh, one of, uh, we had a guest here last week, and uh, he, he went up and asked uh, my father, uh, did, did, did Pastor John get permission to preach that from you? I don't think that was a Mother's Day message. And, uh, of course, he was joking about Rahab. But at the end of that story, when we talked about Rahab, we, we went to Matthew chapter 1 and we talked about, or we read there, the genealogy of Christ. And in verses uh, 3 through 6 of Matthew chapter 1, it mentions four females, four grandmothers of, of Jesus. And we kind of ended with these four thoughts. And, and so they'll be on the screen this morning. Just a kind of reminder, uh, Tamar, it, uh, the statement we made about her was, even your darkest sins can be forgiven. Even your darkest sins can be forgiven. Can we all say amen to that? Rahab, regardless of your past, you can be used. Can we say amen to that? Ruth, God, this is a big one, isn't it? God has not forgotten you. Aren't you thankful for that? You ever feel like God has forgotten you? He's not listening. He doesn't understand. And the story of Ruth and the fact that, that God allowed their stories to be uh, in Matthew to tell us that they are the line of Jesus Christ. Without these women, we would not have had the lineage of Jesus Christ. And the last one, Bathsheba, we looked at was God can redeem any situation. Can you say amen to that? God can redeem any situation. So uh, I've asked you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. And so now hold your spot in Exodus 1. And I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 7 now, okay? Because Acts chapter 7, interestingly enough, is going to give us the context for Exodus chapter 1. I know it doesn't make sense because Exodus 1 was written many years before uh, Acts, but Acts is going to give us the context for Exodus 1, Acts chapter 7. As you turn to Acts chapter 7, I'm going to give you the context of Acts chapter 7, okay? So we're going to have a lot of context there, all right? But in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is going to stand before the religious council. And this religious council is, is saying that he is being accused of blasphemy. Blasphemy against the Lord. And so they ask him to give a defense for what he's been teaching. And so that's the really quick overview or context of what we're walking into in Acts chapter number 7. So in Acts 7, Stephen gets up to give an account... If you know the story, I'm going to go ahead and give you the ending of Acts chapter number 7. It doesn't end well, well, depending on how you look at it, it doesn't end well for Stephen because the last part of chapter 7, he is stoned to death because of what we're about to read, because of who he claims Jesus Christ is. But we're going to read it for sake of context. So verse number 1, Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest said, are these things so? 
All right, so he's giving Stephen a, uh, an opportunity to def- defend himself. So Stephen says, and he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of the glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran, and said to them, excuse me, said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So remember, uh, faith is always, or, uh, Abraham is always an example of faith. And so by faith, Abraham left his country to go where God told him to go. Then he, verse number four, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on it. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Verse 6, but God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them out into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. So this is prophecy that's going to, the Israelites, the people of Abraham, are going to be in bondage for 400 years. Verse number 7, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of the circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph. So remember, they sold their brother into slavery, into Egypt. But God was with him, verse 10, and delivered him out of the troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob, okay, the father of Joseph, heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out far, our fathers first, the brothers of Joseph, verse number 13. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all the servants to him, 75 people. So 75 people, Joseph's family, make the journey from where they were living to Egypt because there is food. Verse 15, so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. They were carried away back to Shechem uh, and land and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought at a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. Verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near. Okay, so the time of the promise, which we just read, was 400 years. They were going to be in bondage. And so now he brings us back. So he's just given us 400 years of history really quick. Okay, but when the, verse 17, when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, which we just read about, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt for these 400 years. Verse number 18, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. Right, so this is the context. Joseph goes, he saves the people of Israel. Before there really was a people of Israel, 75 of them moved to live to Egypt. Just as God had promised Abraham would happen, that they were going to live in bondage for 400 years. So the nation of Israel, the 75 of them, go for 400 years. They're under the bondage of Egypt. And, and, and for 400 years, they live in Egypt. Not really in bondage at this point. Because Joseph was second in command. And then we read there in that verse, another king arose that did not know Joseph, or the story of Joseph. So now turn with me back to Exodus chapter number 1. Exodus chapter number 1. So we ended Acts 7 verse 18. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Here we are in Exodus chapter 1 and verse number 8 is where we're going to begin reading. And I'm hoping for you this morning, if you're still awake, that this verse will sound familiar. 
Exodus 1, verse number 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So here we are in the story, and the king doesn't know Joseph or the story of Joseph. Let's continue reading verse 9. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set tesk, tesk, excuse me, taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in fear, or they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. In other words, they put severe circumstances or conditions on them. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service of the, land, of the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. So you get what's taking place here is this new king has come in. It's been 400 years of history. No one really remembers the story of Joseph and how Joseph not only saved the nation of Israel those 400 years earlier, but he also saved the people of Egypt. Because if it weren't for Joseph, then the, all of them would have died for the famine. Remember, there were seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and Joseph had a plan. They saved during the seven years of plenty, so they would have food in the seven years of famine. And so not only did Joseph save the nation of Israel— he also saved the Egyptians. And so because of what he did for the Egyptians, this carried for 400 years, 400 years of really everyone kind of cohabitating together in this land. And yet the king realizes there's a lot of these Hebrew people. And if these Hebrew people decide that they don't like us anymore, there's more of them than us, and that's not going to go well for us. They're going to team up with our enemies and they're going to overthrow us from the inside out. So what does he do? He basically makes them slaves. And as we just read in this text, the, more, the harder that he was on them, what happened? They had more kids. And they begin to multiply and even more and even more. And so his plan of hard work to destroy them doesn't work. So what's his plan? He introduced two people that we just read, two Hebrew women that enter the story. In verse 15, let's read it again. Verse 15 says, And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And here's what he tells them. Verse 16. When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. What is, when you read and hear those words, what does it make you think of? It's murder, isn't it? In our culture, what does this make you think of? Abortion. In America, we have legalized what we read this and are appalled by. How could, how dare the king do that to those Hebrew women and to those boys. But as a country, since 1973, we've done the very same thing. And the reason I remember the year 1973 
It may be one of the greatest years ever in history. I was born in 1973. Anybody else born in 1973? All right, it is great. And you know what I think about? It would have been legal for my parents to kill me. And for now, 44, 45 years, our nation has done what we will read about and be appalled over. And I'm not sure, and, and, and I'm stepping all over my own toes right here, I'm not sure we as a culture and we as a Christian people have done enough to stop it. And so these two ladies, these Hebrew women, are faced with a pretty big decision. Their responsibilities, most, most historians would say that these two women were not, it wasn't that they were the midwives for the entire nation, but that they were probably supervisors over many midwives. And they're faced with a decision. So it's very understandable that in this context and in this culture, that if they don't obey the king, what's going to happen to them? They're going to they're be killed. I mean, for one, in this context, they're slaves. Two, they're women. And three, the king has given them orders. And so they have a decision to make. They're going to do what the king has asked them to do. Or they're going to save the lives of these babies. So look at verse number 17. Let's see what their response is. But the midwives... What does it say? What's the next two words? Say it again. What's the next two words? Fear God. You know who that reminds me of? Reminds me of Rahab that we talked about last week. She feared God more than she feared the king. She feared God more than she feared man. And these two women, let's finish, they feared God and did not do the king... Do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but save the male children alive. And, and you've already seen, we, we showed the video, our hero today is Jochebed. But don't you think these two women would classify as heroes as well? And these, these two women did what we as a Christian culture in America have not done. They saved the lives of these Hebrew boys. And why did they save the lives of these Hebrew boys? What, 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 what allowed them to have the strength? What allowed them to have the courage to do the right thing in spite of the circumstances? It said those two words, right? Fear God. I want you to think about this statement. Who we fear and respect, who we fear and respect the most shapes the way we live our lives. Who we fear and respect the most shapes the way we live our lives. Would you agree to that, yes or no? Let's, let's take that vote again. Yes or no? Do you agree with that statement, yes or no? So, pretty unanimous, if not completely unanimous. Then based on how you've lived your life Yesterday, this past week, this past month, this past year, who or what do you fear? Because we see very distinctively in these women that we looked at last week, Rahab, in these two women, these 
midwives who were not apparently able to have families of their own. That's why they're midwives. They have more fear of God than man. And I would say that in my life, and in my guess in your life as well, that other things have more of our fear and more of our respect than God does. The decisions we make at work, you know, to fudge the numbers, the decisions we make in, in our relationships to do what we know God doesn't want us to do, but we do it anyways. What we fear and respect the most shapes the way we live our lives. And we would all agree to that, but once we've agreed to that statement that it's truth, isn't it really challenging? What, what, what does have my attention? What does have my fear? Let's, let's continue reading verse number 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the, and the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt with them with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Do you see this is a, a, a pattern that, that repeats itself over and over in history, right? They're always trying to get rid of the Jews, and always what they try to do ends up backfiring, right? They, they multiplied. Look at verse 21. And so it was, because the midwives, what's the two words? Feared God. He provided households for them. And you know, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, blessing follows obedience. Blessing follows obedience. So they were faithful to do what God, to believe that God had a greater purpose, to believe that God had a greater plan, to believe that God is more powerful than this king, to believe that God wanted them to do the right thing, and they saved these boys' lives. And because of it, God blessed them, God saved their life, and God gave them families of their own. Verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded, you, you see the, how, you're going to see here how it just continues to get worse. Like we're going we're gonna to um, make life difficult for them, that doesn't work. We're going to tell the midwives to kill the firstborn or to kill any boys that are born, that doesn't work. And so he's ramping up, right? He's, verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded all his people. So not just the Hebrew midwives. He's going to give authority to everyone in Egypt. But let's keep reading. To all his people saying, Every son who is born, you shall cast into the river. Every daughter, you shall save alive. Can you imagine the chaos this would have created? That the authority was given to all the Egyptian men and women... If you see a Jewish boy that is born, what are they supposed to do? Kill it. Throw it into the river. Let's keep reading. So in this context of chaos, a male boy is born. And a man, verse number 1 of chapter 2, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child... She hid him for three months. And this hero that we're going to talk about, Jochebed, not, we don't even, we're not even given her name in this story, are we? 
And, and in fact, we talked last week that Rahab was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 being the faith chapter, the heroes of the faith, or the hall of faith as some would call it. And here's what Hebrews 11.23 says about Jochebed. By faith Moses, when he was born, and, and so it's saying by faith Moses. How much faith did Moses have as an infant? Like he had no faith, right? So this is really for his wife, or for his mother. By faith Noah, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's commands. You, you see a pattern here? Three times it's mentioned twice in our text in Exodus. Once here in Hebrews chapter 11 that they were not afraid of the king. And the reason they were not afraid of the king is because they feared who? God. We, we don't even find out her name until, if you want to read in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 20, it mentions her name. Numbers chapter 26, 59 mentions her name and, her, and the dad's name, Jochebed and Amram. But let's keep reading in our story. The faith of one mother. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Can, can you imagine what emotions that this young mother was going through? We read in other scripture that the, she had already had two other kids, Aaron and Miriam. Most would say that, that Aaron was about three years of age and Miriam was about five or six years of age. And so she has this little boy that's born in this chaos of the world that she lives in. And, and for three months she hides him. And it's pretty obvious why she couldn't hide him anymore for three months, right? Babies get big and they get loud, right? And the only thing that she can think of to do is make a little boat for him and put him in the water. And what she was acknowledging at that moment in, in, in her, in this, in this moment of time, what she was acknowledging is that she could no longer protect this baby who hasn't been given a name yet. She, had, she, she's, she can no longer protect the baby, but who can protect this baby? Who's the only person that can protect this baby? God. And I think it's a very important lesson for us as parents to realize that the, the truth is there's only one person who can protect your kids. And who is that person? God. And it's a, it's a reminder for me as a parent that every day I need to remember that I can't, do, I can't really protect my kids. I can do what I can do, and I have to trust who? God. But can you imagine the emotions that she's faced with with this boy that she has had for three months? And I mean, who knows what stories have taken place that she's avoided him being thrown into the river. And the very place that she doesn't want him to go, where does she now place him? In the river. Do you think her prayer life changed over the next few days? Do you think as she nailed down and put that little ark, I will call it, can you imagine the emotion? Can you imagine the urgency in her prayers? Verse number four, and his sister, who we would know as Miriam, who again is like five or six years of age, stood afar off to know what would be done to them. Can you imagine what that little girl was thinking? Probably not really at that age completely understanding what's going on. 
the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And she knows what she's supposed to do with this boy, doesn't she? I mean, her, her dad's the one that made the law, right? She has compassion. I love verse number 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, This girl's smart, isn't she? Thank God for big sisters. I never thought I would say that. But anyways... It's amazing um, how God works. Isn't it amazing when you look back on things God has done in your life and, and people may say, was, well, that just was happenstance or that was just circumstance and, 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 and the thing. No, 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 no. It wasn't just by chance that Pharaoh's daughter was the one that came. It wasn't just by chance that Miriam sat there and was looking. And, and then what does she do? I mean, this is brilliant. Verse number 7. And, and we're not given any backstory on like mom told Miriam hey, if someone shows up, tell them I can feed the child, right? But she says that, verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? She doesn't say mom. She's not going to indict her mom, right? Hey, I know a lady. And she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. God always provides, doesn't he? We, we've been praying as a church, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, God, we would expect you to do, and we want you to do, we're praying for you to do exceedingly, infinitely more than we could ask or think. Do you think that in her prayers, that Jochebed, when she put, the, when she put Moses into the water, do you think she ever in her wildest dreams thought, in just a little while, they're going to bring him back to me, and they're going to pay me to watch my child. Do you think that was even in her imagination at all? Can God do infinitely more than we could ask or think or even imagine? God's provision is unbelievable because of her faith and willingness to say, God, he is yours. You, you have given to him. I can't protect him. He's yours. I release control. God, he's in your hands. Can God do more with what we give him than if we keep it from him? And we have to release those things. We have to release control. And, and, and it goes way beyond just our kids. There, there's so many things in our lives that we hold on to, that we want to control, that we want to protect. That, you know, some of you, the truth is, some of you are control freaks. Right? Raise your hand if you're a control freak. All right? So I'm just going to give you some advice. This is free. It's not in my notes at all. The, the truth is, control is an illusion. You really are never in control. So, sorry to burst your bubble there, but that's just the reality, okay? And she releases her control. And in her wildest dreams, she did not imagine that not only was God going to save her little baby, but she was going to be paid for the next three years to nurse her own child. Is God good? 
Can God do infinitely more than you could ask or think? So what can we learn from this story? What what can we learn? Just three things. And So you've been wondering if we're going to get to the bulletin outline. We are, right? We're going to get to it pretty quickly. I'm not going to make any promises. But before we get it, I want to, there's a quote from um, Andy Stanley. Maybe this will be encouragement to you as, as parents this morning. Uh, it says this, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. So for all of you moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and those kids you're trying to steer in the right direction, God has given you the most important task. He's entrusted you with a precious little life. And, and is, is parenting difficult? I ask you a question. Is parenting difficult? Whew. We're, we're about to enter the phase of empty nest. I'm not sure if I'm excited about it or sad about it or all of the above. I'll ask some of you for advice later. But you know what our, our job as parents to make disciples who make disciples. My, my, my mission as a parent is no different than our mission as a church. We're to make disciples who make disciples. Deuteronomy chapter 6, known as the Shema, says that I, as a father, it's my responsibility to train my kids to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's my responsibility as a parent. And do you realize that you can do everything quote-unquote right in raising your kids and they can still make bad choices? And the truth is you can do everything quote-unquote wrong that you're supposed to do as a parent and they can make some really good choices. It's God's control. It's God's grace. I'm responsible to teach them to know and to love God and to make disciples who make disciples. But am I ever really in control? No, God is. Three points, real quickly. Three things we can learn from Jochebed. Number one is believe God. She feared God. She believed God. She had faith in God more than her circumstances. Believe that her God, the God that she served, the God of her fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was bigger than the king who was trying to press them and trying to kill their baby. She believed that God was bigger. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.6. It says, being confident in this very thing, that he, God, who began a good work in me, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And some days when, when I don't feel like life is going so well, that I can go to this verse and say, I believe that God is still working in me and for me and through me in spite of how I feel today. Romans 8.28, it's on the screen. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that your God is bigger than your circumstances? And he is. Think of the situation that this young mother was in, and she's putting her baby into the water, and because she believed that God was big enough to take care of it, God took care of it. Sometimes believing and having that faith that God is big enough 
isn't it hard sometimes? Isn't it hard sometimes in, in, in spite of my circumstances just to thank God? I don't see you. You're definitely not answering my prayer like I want you to. But I'm going to believe you in spite of the circumstances. The second one, number two, believe and follow. Follow God. The verse that came to mind as I think about this, Matthew 16, 24, it's on your bulletin, also be on the screen. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So my, my first step this morning is that I must believe that God is in control. I must believe that God is bigger than my circumstances. I must believe that God can and will work for my good, for his glory. And then as I believe and I have faith and I take that next step, God, I'm going to follow you, whatever you ask me to do. It, it, you know, for Jochebed, I'm going to place my baby in the river and I'm going to trust. But there's two steps in order to follow Christ that are on your bulletin that are in this verse. It says, deny himself and take up your cross. But the reality is this morning, we're all selfish people. I'm very selfish. I was waiting to see if you guys were going to respond to that. I'm glad you didn't. We're all by nature selfish, aren't we? You and your, you and your spouse, you guys have the same battle that me and my spouse have over the, the, the thermostat in the house, just like everyone, right? How many of you have won the battle? Let's see if you get a ribbed elbow to the rib as you're... We're not going to go down that road. Let's not talk about that. Deny self. God, it's, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about my conveniences. In our culture, we're convinced that God wants to make us happy. The most important thing God wants for me is that he wants me to be happy. Guess what? Survey says wrong. God's goal for you is not for you to be happy. His goal is for you to be holy. And God knows that if you will become holy, you will also be what? Happy. We pursue the happiness and we stop pursuing the holiness. We're, and so in order to pursue holiness, it's going to take us setting our desires and our goals and our ambitions and quit pursuing what we want, and we must deny ourselves and pursue who? God and His holiness. And as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, what does the rest of the verse say? All these things shall be added unto us. We pursue the things, we pursue the happiness, and we forget about the holiness. And God is saying, if you'll pursue the holiness, I'll give you the happiness. We get it all mixed up, don't we? We have to deny ourselves, and we have to take up our cross. And we think about a cross, you know, we think of the nice necklace and a, re, and a reminder, and wow, it's great. And, and what is the cross a symbol of? The cross is a symbol of crucifixion. The cross is a symbol of the, the most hideous, horrible, painful way the Romans could think of of killing someone was the cross. And so when, when Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me, he's promising that life is not always going to be easy. 
He's promising that when we take up the cross and follow him, where are we going? If, if we have the cross in our hand and we're following Jesus, where is he taking us? Where did he carry his cross? To his death. So it's taking up my cross and following him. I'm not sure that us modern-day American Christians really want any part of that. I think most of us, most of us modern-day American Christians, don't want a cross. We want to look at the cross and we want to celebrate the cross, but we don't want to be on the cross. We have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And then number three there. Do it again. This is really deep theology here. (laughs) Believe God. Follow God. And guess what you need to do tomorrow? Look at our text. We didn't read verse number 10, and some of you are wondering why. This is why. Exodus chapter 2, verse number 10. So get this. The emotions might... My child is going to die. There's nothing I can do but give him to God, place him in the boat, and and, and just pray. And God delivers the baby. And God pays her to raise her baby. She believed and she followed. But guess what she had to do in verse number 10? The child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called him Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Can, can you imagine how that was? She's already released him to God once. She's gotten him back. She's proven that she believes and she's going to follow God whatever the cost And here we are about three years later, according to most uh, theologians that say, now it's the time to give him back. We read the verse in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's a parallel verse in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And it pretty much says the same thing. Let's look at Luke 9, 23. It says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. What's the extra word here? Daily. So I'll make a decision today to believe and follow God and surrender my life. And what decision do I need to make tomorrow? To believe God and follow God. Say, God, whatever you want from my life, whatever you'd have for me, that's what I want. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10. Most of us know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but look at verse number 10, and it's going to be on the screen for you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why should we follow God every day? Why should we get up every day and say, God, I believe you, 
I'm going to follow you. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross and follow you because God has a purpose for your life. God created you with a plan and a purpose. God didn't just create you to make a dollar. He created you to make a difference. And we are focused on the dollar, not the difference, aren't we? God didn't create you just to be here, to take up space. God created you for a purpose. He said you're his workmanship. You're... Psalms talks about how he formed you, knit you together in your mother's womb. He created you in your image, in his image for a purpose, for good works. Now let's go back to Ephesians 8, 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So some of you need to hear this this morning, that salvation is a gift, not a reward. Salvation is a gift, not a reward. And the reason that I want to believe and follow God is because God has let me know at the age of 17 that salvation was a gift, not a reward. And I called on Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. And according to what Scripture teaches me, at that very moment, He saved me. He redeemed me. He empowered me with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And He's created me, adopted me, redeemed me, so that I can make disciples who make disciples. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 4. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. That's a weird verse to end on, I'm just going to be honest with you. But doesn't that point to our culture? We're focused on our happiness, not our holiness. We're focused on our mission, not his mission. We're focused on making a good life for ourselves, not living a good life for him. And every single day we need to make the decision, I'm going to believe and I'm going to follow. I want you to bow your head just for a moment in prayer. And I'm going to ask Ben to come up and... Ben's going to sing the first part of a song this morning. And in this first part of this song, I want you just, after I pray here, I want you just to, to look at the screen and look at the words. And I want you to ask yourself the question, am I really daily believing that God is in control? Am I really daily believing that God has a purpose and a plan for me? Am I really daily believing, God, you're in control, I'm not in control? Am I really believing and am I really following, am I really taking up my cross? Am I really denying self and following what Jesus wants in my life? And, and if you can on, be honest enough with yourself this morning and say, nope, that's not me. Or m- maybe some days I do. Or I need some work on it. In a moment we're going to stand and I'm going to ask you to come forward and pray. But before we stand and before you come forward, let me pray. Ben's going to lead us in a song, and as he sings, I just want you to read the words. God, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the faith of Jochebed. If it were not for Jochebed, Lord, we wouldn't, who knows? I mean, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses led the people out of Egypt. 
And I'm thankful for the faithful and, and just the amazing faith of this lady who believed and followed. Lord, there's so many things in this room that we could be dealing with and areas in our life where we need to, to give control back. Maybe it is our kids. Maybe it's our finances. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our health. And we need just to trust you and believe, God, that you're in control, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And, and God, whether it's good or whether it's bad, I believe and I'm going to follow. Challenge our hearts this morning as you have through your word. Lord, help us to respond. As Ben sings, just, just be reflective, read the words, listen to the words. Ask yourself, do I really believe and follow God?